Welcome to That Tree Lady Podcast, Episode 3, Your Tree Type and Feelings. Let's talk about self-awareness. It's been a while since we've talked. Yeah. It has been a while. How is working in the food industry, the hospitality industry during COVID? How, what is that like? It's good. There are a lot of gloves and masks and you have to have your wits about you to keep clean and uh, keep everyone happy. But things are starting to lighten up a little bit here. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that they are freeing you up for a couple of hours so that we can have this discussion today about self-awareness and feelings. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In which basket are your eggs when it comes to self-awareness? It is very much in the forefront of my and my team's minds because we are actively working on an emotional intelligence tool. I found that there are many definitions floating around regarding emotional intelligence, but then specifically this generally agreed upon emotional intelligence 101 thing called self-awareness. There is no intelligence in the emotional social environment without us first seeing ourselves. Is that separate from IQ? Can you be really, really smart, but have very low self-awareness and therefore very low EQ? Is that the relationship there? Yes, unfortunately, that is possible. But that's not the only thing we should put on the table when we're talking about emotional intelligence and IQ at the same time. Because right. unlike IQ, which really is very difficult to raise, if at all, mm. Uh, emotional intelligence, formerly known as EQ, that score, that measurement is not fixed. That's the great news. So when we talk about self-awareness today and feelings, we are not talking about a diagnosis and we are not talking about a static state of, oh, okay, you're not self-aware or who oh, you are. Mm. I'd say that if you can actually change a part of yourself that has to do with interacting with other people on an emotional level, and raise your competence in that area, I'd say that's a really, really good thing to prioritize. Um, is it competence or is it something else? It is competence. We're talking about skills. We're talking okay. about something that responds to an intentional decision to work in that area. And it's uncomfortable work because it's always uncomfortable to look in the mirror unless you are spectacularly fabulous and flawless. And, um, <laughs> and no one is. So. No, it takes bravery. This is a really brave exercise, which is why I think I've avoided it for, for a long time in my life. Because every time you ask somebody, what is in my blind spot so that I can make it part of how I see myself? Well, you brought up a really good point there, which means that you're more than you see yourself as. And that's something that I think is at the core of self-awareness, but it's something self-consciousness doesn't really touch upon i think there's an important difference between those two self-consciousness if you're looking at a strictly biological definition let's say you know um is the ability to know that there is a you and there is there are things that are not you mm. um it's very interesting to think about how animals who do not have self-consciousness actually think and perceive the world. They don't perceive themselves as self-isolated, self-contained units, centers of experience. They experience mm. themselves and the environment as one thing. 
And it's, yes. an, it's that constant interplay between themselves and their environment that comprise their lives. And that's why animals don't, aren't concerned about things like mortality. And a zebra can just stand very calmly next to a lion, as long as that lion is not a hungry chasing you lion, <laughs> um, because it doesn't realize, because the hungry chasing you lion is the thing that triggers its instincts. But the lying down sleeping lion, that's a completely different lion to the zebra. Like we can see into the future because of our self-consciousness. Um, and we know that we exist in a relationship where no matter if the lion looks like it's sleeping now, it's probably not going to be sleeping in a few minutes. And then we better watch out. So we avoid the line. So self-consciousness opens up other people and the future. Does that also open up an awareness of patterns? Hey, I'm not a morning person. I am no good after hard work socially, or hey, I don't need to be around people as much as I need to be alone. So those are elements of self-consciousness mm. and it's those patterns that line up with hopefully if you have a good instrument it lines up with your personality style profile your tall trees report and you can see yes no wonder i have these social and emotional and communication patterns i think self-consciousness allows us to analyze patterns about specifically ourselves and so i think that i need some music in the afternoon um, I need to walk at least 30 minutes a day. Otherwise, I feel really bad. And so a huge part of knowing yourself is regulating yourself. It's ties in with self-discipline, of course. And just to, to make sure we have the same definition of self-regulation, let mm. me put mine on the table and then you fill in the gaps from your perspective. So I right. think of self-regulation as returning from a place of fight, flight, or freeze to a place where I can act in line with my own values, with conscious thought. Right. I really like the second part of your definition, which is that successful self-regulation is being able to behave in line with your explicit beliefs, values, and appropriate to the context in which you find yourself. Like that is, that is the goal of self-regulation is to enable real pointed ethical action. However, I think I might disagree with you on where you come from when you're not there. And when you think of dysregulation, fear, flight, and fight, uh, that freeze, fight, and flight reaction, those are all also pointed motivational states. If you are afraid, then you freeze and that's actually a regulated state it's just not an optimal regulated state in every scenario like if you're in front of a cobra and it's about to strike you really want to freeze you that's should what you want freeze. to do you should freeze and that is your regulated state right then and that can be said for fear fight and flight in certain circumstances now dysregulation is not being able to control when you are in any of those different motivational states. And it goes far beyond fear, fight, and flight. It might be greed. It might be tiredness, laziness. It might be overexcitement. Each one of them could possess you at any time if you're not regulating yourself properly. But if you're regulating yourself properly, you can choose which one of them you want to use as a tool. 
Braithwaite, you just said, I can be fighting and yet not need to self-regulate right now. I can be yeah. running like crazy with adrenaline pumping through my veins and should not regulate beyond that. I am regulating by running from the lion. It's the appropriate response. This mm -hmm. is a revelation to me and I'm absolutely going to abuse it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. But there's a part of me that wants to say, I knew it. I knew that sometimes fighting, yeah. even though it may look to the audience watching this, that I'm now out of control and should self-regulate. Mm -hmm. It may not be necessary to self-regulate, but you can look as calm as all day on Saturday and be smiling and yet have a problem, a comfortable, feel-good emotion that is hijacking what you called my ethical behavior. Pointed action, yes. Yeah, because I'm ignoring my family's needs or I'm ignoring my own actual needs that I have now that go beyond vegging mm. out in front of the TV. And I may be in a terrible state of self-regulation, even though I'm feeling really chill. Right, yeah, self-regulation isn't about chilling out. It's not about being calm in every single situation. It's not about finding that place of tranquility and bliss. Um, I don't think self-regulation is about those things at all. I think it's an unrealistic view of your relationship with the environments that you find yourself in constantly. There are sometimes problems in your life, problems in your family, things that need to be fought, things that need to be run away from, things that need to scare you in order for you to grow and progress as a person. And then chilling on your couch and watching seven episodes of a soap <laughs> opera is actually dysregulation. So where does the idea come from that the dysregulated person is flying off the handle and the regulated person is happy, serene, calm? Is it a philosophy? Is it a religion? Where does this come from? I think that it is a, it's a mixture of philosophical and religious ideas. And I think that it's really based in the Western religious philosophical corpus, um, where there's an overabundance of order and not enough chaos emphasized in not the writings, but the rather the interpretations of classical philosophical and religious scripture. So I'm surprised by your answer, honestly, because I was getting ready for you to say, this comes from Zen Buddhism. This comes from the idea of tranquility, you know, legs crossed, fingers touched together, hum, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. the enlightenment and the yoga state. You know, I was thinking that's right. what you would say. You're saying, <laughs> I'm, I'm pointing, I'm looking at you, Western society, and, and I'm pointing you out. So please do continue, and I'm going to try and regulate myself now while I'm being confronted with beliefs that I probably don't quite understand. So go for it. Right. So really the source of that is concentration and integration of all of the different emotions, not suppression of the, those emotions. And so the actual peace and tranquility that comes to the um, enlightened Buddha in the 
in the Buddhist writings comes from an integration of all of his emotions. And he uses those emotions as tools in order to resist the temptations and the threats of the gods while he sits under the bow tree and thus becomes enlightened. And so really, even in the surface level calm appearance of the Buddhist writings, there's this deep underlying narrative of you have these emotions and drives and they are by default completely dysregulated but you have a tool that can regulate them, your will. And you can use that in order to select which one of them you want to use as a tool, but only once you've made friends with them. Now, this is where the dynamic between chaos and order really um, comes from. And I believe uh, a lot of Western thought has strayed away from chaos. Now, that's a very useful way of thinking if you want um, life to be easy and idealistic. That's the core of the utopian idea. It's like if, if we could just get everything in perfect order. And everybody's going to be happy all the time. Everyone's going to be happy all the time. We'll all be cogs in a great machine hmm. and the world will be perfect. I have listened to several teachings over the past few months that, talk, that use a phrase, returning to joy. And it mm -hmm. also reminds me of what I saw in the movie Inside Out, where joy, as one of the emotions in the little girl's life, insists that sadness and anger and disgust stay out of the picture. And she mourns every memory that's tainted by any emotion except joy. She insists that it has to be joy until she has this epiphany. She realizes that without sadness, the little girl that she wants to make happy couldn't get the help she needed to return to not just a happy place, but a real place, being a real person with all of the emotions. So she starts celebrating sadness and breakthroughs happen because mm. of that. But, but tell me how Western society gets this wrong. So your experience exists in equal parts, chaos and order. And sometimes you're in order. Sometimes you're in the white serpent. Sometimes you're in order. But at any point, you can delve into chaos. So your life can be as orderly as you want. That's the snake in the Garden of Eden idea. It's like in the most perfect place. There's still the a walled snake. garden paradise. There will always be a little bit of chaos there. And in the most chaotic place, there will always be a little bit of order. The proper place to live is not in order. And it's not in chaos. It's on the line between order and chaos. I'm intentionally avoiding the, right. the phrase negative emotions because I have come to believe there is no such thing. Mm. That we have emotions we enjoy and we have emotions we do not enjoy. But right where they take us determines whether this is going to be a negative emotion or a positive emotion. It's really yeah. the response that may be helpful or unhelpful as yes. it is comfortable or uncomfortable. So we agree on that. I do experience that in the Christian faith and in the church environment and in the ministry space, that there is a very low tolerance for being unhappy. There's a very mm -hmm. low tolerance for being angry, mm -hmm. even angry about things we probably should be angry about and so forth. So do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So there are commandments in the Bible not to be upset. 
yeah, you've, you've really hit on something there. Um, it is, if you didn't do something wrong, that makes you upset. Like you're not remorseful about something and you haven't been the victim of some sort of malevolence or tragedy. You can be spontaneously sad, angry, um, and in pain just as a consequence of, of your ignorance about who you are and where you are in the world. Um, it's a symptom of the human condition. It shouldn't be condemned as some sort of demonic force. Yeah, and it's not an indication that we are not spiritually mature. Because right. for me, one of the scriptures I come back to a lot of the time, because if people ask me, what is the emotion you miss the most in your life? Then I will say peace. I would like to feel more peace, mm -hmm. more joy, more contentment. And those are fruit of the spirit. And so I do feel a sense of spiritual inferiority among people who are more often peaceful and joyful than I am. But I have come to the conclusion that we have the prerogative, it's our task, to ask a question that I'm borrowing from Susan David, who says you need to ask what the funk, and that funk is F-U-N-C, and it means what is the function of this? What is the function right. of this anger I'm feeling? What's the function of this guilt? And mm. she uses an example I can identify with very much. That's very much a part of our lives, Biru, is me traveling, speaking, being away from home a lot, and that guilt of I, I could do so much better as a mom, but I can also do so much better at work. So you have this guilt and frustration until you ask, what's the function of guilt right now? And, and you realize, oh, what this does is it tells me both my work and my family matter deeply to me. And I need right. to be more intentional about figuring out how to prioritize both mm -hmm. widely. So what can yeah. I do now? Let me call my kids. Let me take all the snacks from the hotel room home for them mm -hmm. as evidence that I thought of them the entire time I was away. And let me use right. this time away from them to get a lot of stuff done. Absolutely. And, and if you've ever really had a great time with someone, you know that per the day afterwards, everything feels kind of gray. Everything feels a little bit like mellow, as if there was a contrast between what you experienced the day before and what you're experiencing today. There's this um, little piece of your life that was satisfied yesterday and isn't being satisfied today and the fact is the day before you hung out with your friend or spent some time with someone you really loved that day you might have felt content and then your emotional world is expanded by being around that person and then it clamps back down when you're not around them and that causes some negative emotion as well so there are many different causes for these emotions but I think I really want to say the emotions are causes themselves. You're never emotionless. We call those drives psychologically, really. Drive for self-preservation, the, the drive for companionship. There are, there are many different drives and those are emotional drives and they're present regardless of circumstance. Uh, they may be pushed up and down your list of emotional priority, let's say, and some of them may grip you completely in certain circumstances. Now, I want to get back on this, on this chaos order thing, because really what I see in that intolerance for the negative emotion 
thing and 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 us thinking that anger sadness depression are ethically bad things because the moment you suppress emotions like that the first thing you do is you strip them of their ethical framework and you put them in the category of bad these are bad emotions and then the opposites of those are good emotions now there are psychophysiological consequences to some emotions like anger anger is one of the most harmful emotions to have for a prolonged period of time Um, unforgiveness is also one of them it makes you age sadness is like that too and so there are psychophysiological consequences to these emotions if they're not dealt with because if unforgiveness was not as uncomfortable as it was we would never be motivated to resolve the conflict with the person that we are bitter towards so bitterness is supposed to be really bitter and the fact that you have bitterness is not a sin the fact that right. you refuse in spite of your bitterness to seek reconciliation, that might be the problem. Yes, I'd say that that's definitely the problem. And that's true of every so-called negative emotion because you haven't resolved it yet. Yeah. And that's where it comes back to self-awareness. And that's where it comes back to the chaos order dichotomy. You automatically throw chaotic emotions, which are your strongest emotions. They are your fundamental drives you automatically label them as bad. But if you believe that the correct place for a human being to be is walking the line between chaos and order, then you're not going to think of your strongest, most chaotic drives as bad. You're going to think of them as chaotic and then go, okay, they're chaotic. How can I transfer them into a more orderly, um, structured place without completely (laughs) clamping them down? Yeah, because yeah. then that it's kind of dead when there's no disorder. Yes. Because growth and every growth mm. spurt is disorder. I mean, look at puberty, how essential puberty is. It's chaos. Right. It's but chaotic. without that, there is no adulthood. I found it so profound right. that that's where the movie ended, the Inside Out movie ended. There was this button on the emotional control pattern where all the, the emotions ran this person's life from. There was this button mm-hmm. called puberty and somebody said what is this and I go it probably doesn't matter and I thought yeah all of you emotions who thought you had her life figured out are starting over Vera I want to take this back to three type personalities for the yes. remainder of our time in this episode and I want to ask you if you think you being a combination of boxwood which in other systems sometimes is called melancholy right <laughs> and Fine, which is called phlegmatic and is known for emotional stability and mm-hmm. for being very even tempered. And me, who has a lot of rows, and we're known as choleric and we're supposed to be super explosive. And I also have a lot of the melancholy, but in my social profile, I have some palm too. So, yep, I'm very excitable. That's my opinion that there are some patterns here. I think, without a doubt, for me, my main wrestling ground with my own emotions and my main grounds of exploration of my own self-awareness have been tackling the fundamental drives. Those have been the things I've struggled with the most because like you said, I'm not a very volatile person emotionally. So if someone shouts at me or throws something at me or whatever, it doesn't affect me emotionally as strongly as it might affect someone else. And I can regulate that just fine. Um, 
I can stay calm regardless of situation almost. If there's something extremely extreme that happens, maybe then it'll affect me on a level that's above my capacity for self-regulation. But when I'm dealing with my fundamental drives, that's where I really have to watch out because those things, it doesn't matter how emotionally stable you are, those things can just take control of you. You have to really explore them and know them well in order for them to not take control of you. And maybe they can take control of people with different temperaments in different ways. Yeah. From our framework, what you just highlighted is a, is a division of self-awareness that we call self-management, colon, impulse control. So there's this self-awareness. It's not just awareness of emotions. It's not just expressing those emotions or being assertive to talk back to these emotions and say, okay, wait a minute, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or to have stress management, that resilience that you're talking about, the bouncing back, if I push you emotionally right. to be able to bounce back that resilience. So you, you feel like those things are not hard for you. You understand your emotions, you recognize them, you can name right. them, you can express them and you can manage the stress that they cause and deal with it in constructive ways. But that last one, the self-management part, that really is about impulse control in life in general. I mm. think of the palm trees as impulsive. I think of the palm roses as the most explosive and the ones most needing self-management skills to give us a little mm. bit of a window into that. If you could say the 30-second elevator defense of why we should all add to our self-awareness goals, not just being aware of the, the very conscious disruptive emotions, but being aware of the basic ones that are there constantly. Right. Okay. So there's this quote. It is from a Swiss psychologist card called Carl Jung, whose work I'm a big fan of. And he said, Whomever thinks himself the master of his will is inevitably a slave to fate. And everyone needs to realize you are not, no matter how it might seem, the master of your actions. And you can tell that immediately when you make a New Year's resolution. You say, I'm going to go to the gym three times a week for the next year. And then you buy the gym membership and maybe you go for two weeks. And well, that's the end of that. 98% of the time, who's the master? Self-regulation is about you learning how to control yourself and knowing that you will never ever fully be able to control yourself. You'll just be able to rearrange the elements that do. If you acknowledge, okay, well, my drive for career success is out of control. You say, okay, well, that's what's possessing me right now. That's not me. My family is not my priority. My God is not my priority. No matter what I say, my actions reflect something else. So there's something at the top of my value hierarchy here that I did put there and should not have. And then if you're willing to be humble and submit yourself to the fact that you do not rule your own being, then you can actually begin taking that hierarchy apart and reinstantiating it. And you need chaos to do that. And that's why chaos is so important. But the fundamental drives are the first things you have to figure out because those are the things that will possess you in lieu of things being in order in your life. So that's what makes them fundamental is you can build on top of them. 
And you say that those things need to become conscious. Yes. And then you need to make decisions. And then you need to be very honest with yourself about who or what do you want to surrender this control to. Because it is your prerogative to say, I'm going to surrender to my kids because they are my first priority. So whatever makes my kids happy, that's what I'm going to do right now. But they know that that is what you did. Yes. I think that um, I was talking um, to a friend of mine a couple of days ago and we were talking about this. We were talking about freedom. And I remembered a quote and I don't know where I heard it. I believe my philosophy professor here at Maryville College actually told me this. Uh, Dr. Meyer, he said, true freedom isn't freedom from slavery. It's being able to choose what you are enslaved to. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you are just in chaos. And um, that is what I'm talking about, is you have emotional elements, these things floating around inside of you. You can't get rid of them. And if you try, then they will take the reins of your life from the shadow of your soul. Carl Jung talked about that a lot. Mm-hmm. You can't get rid of them. So you have to order them. That means the unpleasant ones too. You have to order the unpleasant ones too. You have to give them their due. Otherwise they will take it by force. They'll possess you in times when you don't want them to possess you. So you have to be wise and know yourself in order to be able to give those things their proper due and still be a like lined up person that acts out what they say they're going to do. I love how that resonates with one of my favorite emotional regulation scriptures who may, that may not seem like a self, like a regulatory scripture, but it's the one that says, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Because Mm. what that says is I'm now going to zip open my heart. I've tried to look in there. I saw some things, some I like, some I didn't like, but there are probably some things I don't yet see. Uh, can you look in there for me and let me know what's not good there so I can see what I'm really doing, what's really in my heart, and then lead mm-hmm. me in the way everlasting, which for me is not just about lead me on the way that will take me to heaven where I can live forever. It's lead me in a way that's not just good for today, but that thing that's, that's my forever compass, that thing that will yes. take me on a path where I can say, yep, I lived my legacy. Yeah, I reached my purpose. Yes, this will not change tomorrow. Right. Yeah, and that forever compass idea that it's a way, ways eternal. That means that... Eternal. I love that phrase, ways eternal. Mm-hmm. And that way, it's important to know that that way is actually a changing way. It's not some sort of unified scheme that you adopt and then suddenly, boom, you're on the eternal way and your ways never change. The eternal way is in the middle of chaos and order. And the evil is making things that should be a bit chaotic way too orderly. Or making things that are way too orderly and introducing too much chaos into them. Yeah, um, it's, it's kind of that, that warning where, uh, where the prophet says, you're going to have these prophets who tell you everything's fine, everything's fine, who are going to rub your ears, but it is not okay. Mm-hmm. So there is this call to not be lulled into a chill state when it's not the right time to be in a chill state. There are times where you have to be alarmed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but there are also times when the evil one will introduce fear where he has no business doing it. So Peter, this has been so informative for me to listen to how you see 
this and the, right. the things you highlighted, my takeaway that's new for me today is that in self-regulation, I should view the calm and comfortable and warm and fuzzy feelings with as much suspicion as I am viewing the ones that really throw me for a loop. Because there's long-term and short-term conscious and unconscious dysregulation. And I should spend some time investigating all four of those categories. And then I should still leave a lot of space for the possibility that I have blind spots. And then I, I can use my temperament information to give me a few clues. I can say, Rosebush, yes. I'm looking at you for anger. And Palm Tree, I'm looking at you for your sex drive and your greed. Um, mm -hmm. Boxwood, I'm looking at you for despair and despondency and hopelessness and suspicion, and, you know, all sorts of things. I've got a lot of those as a box. Pine tree, I'm looking at you for no tolerance for uncomfortable emotions. I'm looking at you for wanting to chill and for possible laziness and lack of motivation, which is a dysregulated state. If you're not motivated, yes. according to your purpose, you are in dysregulation and you need to regulate. So right. that, that fun place for the pine tree where I'm just, in seventh heaven or you know hanging somewhere between heaven and earth cloud nine man cloud nine you told yeah. me today Piru, that that is a dysregulated state that needs attention yeah. because you're not moving in the direction that your purpose points and where your ethics are mm. in line with your will and thank you for reminding me that it's not the emotions that drive us but our will consciously deciding what should right this is where one can submit to the Holy Spirit, submit to people, submit to your own drives, uh, yes. submit to a teaching or a dogma that's going to run your life for you. That's not the way everlasting. Right. Uh, quick fix. Absolutely. I very much look forward to our next conversation. And there were many things you said that we could have paused at and unpacked some more. So let's at some point, revisit some of these valuable things that were put on the table. I can think of a couple of them and we'll try and work them into next episodes. Right. Yeah. I look forward to that. Well, go, until next time. Yeah, go <laughs> wash your hands, put on your mask, go serve people food. <laughs> Thank Will you do. for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you.